Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, Mr Morrison goes to Washington, alt-right and the libertarian influences on this government, and spinning your way to success. Why waste money on a real government program when you can pay a celebrity to do the work for you? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, reserve water boy for the Australian Rugby League. Scott Morrison has been to Washington and back. He's the first Australian Prime Minister to visit an American president since John Howard in 2006. And he's just the second foreign leader to have a state dinner with Donald Trump. State dinners are grand formal events for the bon vivants of both countries. Fine wine and fine food are always on offer. But they are events that are put on to highlight the special relationship between these two countries even if it does offer the opportunity for mutual admiration. I would say a man of titanium. <laughs> you know, titanium's much tougher than steel. He's a man of titanium. Believe me, I have to deal with this guy. He's not easy. You might think he's a nice guy, okay? He's a man of, of real, real strength and a great guy. The media reported the success of the US visit, and as far as solidifying the relationship between the two countries, the visit was a success, even if it did put China offside. But the event being a personal success for Scott Morrison, I'm not so sure about that. In the current international political climate, it's probably not such a good idea to saddle up too closely to Donald Trump. But that's exactly what Scott Morrison did, supporting the US trade war against China and offering support for a military presence in the Persian Gulf. It's hard to see how Scott Morrison could have become any closer to Donald Trump. Do you think he was becoming a bit too close to Donald Trump or everything's just going well? Foreign relations is hard. I don't think anybody doubts that. The aim, I would have thought, would have been to balance the strong relationship we have with the US without getting too close to Donald Trump, who domestically is in a lot of trouble. He is likely going to be impeached. There's a chance that he will be removed fairly brutally from office, and there's even a, a slight chance he will go to jail. So cozying up to Donald Trump, the person, not the president of the United States, I think is a very courageous decision in the yes minister sense. I think too that annoying your biggest trading partner to become closer to the United States is a very dangerous thing. We can criticise the Chinese government. I'm not saying that they're a perfect organisation, that, but trade is very important. Good relations is very important. We can be friends with the bigger powers and still criticise them and pull them in. But getting close to Trump seems to me to have a, another agenda that is perhaps beyond what we can see. Well, if Australia did simply trade with all the countries that had exactly the same or similar political systems to itself, well, it probably wouldn't trade with that many countries, and that would be a disaster for the local economy. Most countries can determine the difference between politics or political issues and economic issues, but Australia does have a trade surplus with China of $26 billion, and 40% of Australian exports do go to China. It's the reverse with America. Australia actually has a $22 billion trade deficit with the US. So it seemed quite unwise for Scott Morrison to start lecturing and criticising China and supporting the US trade war from the podium in Washington and also sharing that stage with Donald Trump. He unnecessarily created a great deal of friction with Australia's most important trading partner and for no good reason. 
It was a very bizarre trip. I it was not a success as a trip. I don't think it was probably a personal success for the prime minister. But in terms of furthering Australian interests, I don't think it did. I think it um was a disaster, and Australia came out of it far worse than perhaps it should have. The prime minister attended what essentially became a rally, and one of the rules of foreign politics is that you don't get involved in the domestic politics of another country. I, I know that. World leaders get together and in their private moments they chat about what's going on. But you don't go to a rally and get all hyped up. And the rally was at a Australian businessman who just opened a factory in the States. Should we be pleased with this? I mean, it's successful, sure. But wouldn't a better message be that he'd opened one in Australia? Events such as state dinners, they are, of course, they're always going to be a political event. People just don't turn up because they're hungry and they feel like having a good feed. Ever since he became Prime Minister, Scott Morrison has been making a big issue about being on the side of the Australian people. And we've highlighted this before in previous episodes, but he's on the side of a very exclusive group of Australians. On his guest list at the US State Dinner, he had Gina Reinhart, Lachlan Murdoch, Anthony Pratt, Andrew Forrest, Kerry Stokes, a wide range of business leaders from media, petrochemical, finance and pharmaceutical companies. They don't seem to be your everyday Australians that Scott Morrison says he's on their side. It was a very odd lot of people. Not many were elected officials or appointed or senior public servants. They were all on the side of big money. I always get nervous when I see pharmaceutical reps with government. They want an American system here, or a lot of them do. I don't know why except that it's a way of tying up healthcare to the wealthy and keeping it off the poor. I can't see why you'd want that, but that's the only reason I can see. I think as mining, coal mining at least, is dying as an industry, and it's only got about 20 years left. I was told that by an analyst, that coal isn't going to go next week, but in 20 years there won't be coal mining because it's just not financially viable anymore. To have people from that industry seemed a strange from, from any industry. Again, it should have been public servants and elected representatives, not, you know, Lachlan Murdoch, again, another dying industry, print media and uh, the old broadcast media. Again, Channel 9, Channel 10, Channel 7 aren't going anywhere, or the ABC and SBS aren't going anywhere soon, but they're not going to bounce back. News Corp is slowly dying. Fairfax is slowly dying. So, yeah, very odd. And then Greg Norman, who is a golfer and who hasn't played, who's been retired a, a long time. Surely there were more representative sports people, if you wanted that, who are still playing. The captain of the cricket team, the captain of the league team, the captain of the AFL team, you know, and why not the captain of the women's versions of those teams? So I don't quite get it. Or even another currently playing golfer would have been appropriate. So we have talked about the people that were actually there at the state dinner, but there was a bit of a kerfuffle about one person who wasn't there, and that's Brian Houston. He's the founder of the Pentecostal Hillsong Church in Australia, of which Scott Morrison is a, is a member. Now, it has been reported that Scott Morrison wanted Houston at the official US dinner and lobbied hard to have him there. The White House, of course, they had other ideas. And there's probably a good reason. In 2014, Brian Houston admitted failing to alert police about allegations his father had sexually abused and assaulted nine boys in Australia and New Zealand. And this was within the Hillsong Church. 
the White House must have decided that it was a bridge too far to have someone of this calibre at a state dinner, although you'd think in current political circumstances he'd be more than welcomed. Scott Morrison has neither confirmed or denied that he wanted Brian Houston at the US state dinner, despite repeated questions from the media, and he's simply been saying that he's either already answered the question or it's not of relevance to the public. It's actually a simple question, and he could have answered it quite simply, but because he deflected, he showed that he had something to hide, and I think he did. A previous Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, he had quite a strong ideological blind spot, and this caused him great damage. Does Scott Morrison have a similar situation as Tony Abbott? Does he have a political blind spot when it comes to religious matters? Australia is a secular nation. We have no official religion. There's still a few overhangs, the prayer to open parliament, which I think is a ridiculous anachronism. I think that it's perfectly appropriate that members of parliament have their own religious beliefs or spiritual beliefs or however you want to put it. But no one faith should be favoured over any other faith. It's why secularism works the best. To have Brian Houston there as head of the church was going to be inappropriate anyway given all the allegations about him, it was political suicide, really, or at least political stupidity to even suggest that he goes along. He may be the finest man alive who made a lapse in judgment. I I don't really know. But it was a terrible, terrible lapse in judgment. And let's be a bit fair. How many people could actually turn their father into the police, regardless of what they'd done? But let's be fair the other way. It was a very heinous act he was accused of, and I think he behaved in the wrong kind of way. And the New South Wales Police have confirmed that these matters are still under investigation. Putting this religious factor into context, at the most recent Australian census in 2016, only 1% of the Australian population identifies as Pentecostal, 10% claim to be atheists, and 30% are of no religion whatsoever. 70% of the population is not part of a church or frequents a regular service. So attempts to bridge that gap between religion and the state is probably going to result in political failure. It's probably best for the Prime Minister to get back to the issues that are more relevant to the Australian community. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the external conservative influences on the Australian government and how this is affecting their ability to follow an agenda. Since Scott Morrison became Prime Minister, there's been a wide range of throwaway lines about the Australian government being influenced by far-right politics and replicating the tendencies of hard right-wing regimes of the past. Now it's easy to think this, after all, this government does lock up asylum seekers, downplays human rights, it's obsessed with national security, despises unions and protects corporate interests, it has a cosy relationship with the media, and whether or not it has engaged in electoral fraud is currently being decided by the High Court. 
But recent events have thrown up a series of questions about what is influencing Scott Morrison and the direction of his government. And I was surprised to hear that within the Prime Minister's inner circle is an adherent of the QAnon far-right conspiracy theory. Now, Prime Ministers do need to mix with a wide range of people, but would we expect a QAnon fanatic to be one of them? A lot of people of Pentecostal faith, and I don't know, like, I don't know the percentage whether it's a majority or it's a significant minority or it's just a vocal few, are very much purveyors of conspiracy theories from the slightly loopy, the Bilderbergers run the world, to the completely insane, the world is run by lizard people. Again, I don't want to taint people of faith and I don't want to taint all members of any particular faith. Conspiracy theories, of course, have been around since forever. Secret societies, the Freemasons and the Illuminati from the 17th century, who may have had massive influence or may not, have always been part of this notion of control. More recently, we've had wrapped up in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a fake document done in about 1919, which has been used to justify all kinds of horrible, horrible things. The Area 51 Roswell type things, documented quite entertainingly and on the X-Files, for example. The notion of uh, secret societies and aliens and shadowy groups running the world. My view is... I think it was the president of the World Bank who said that if we really were running a secret cabal to run the world, given the state of the world, we should be bloody ashamed of ourselves, <laughs> which it's hard to come back from that. So given Mr. Morrison's faith, certainly he's been exposed to some of this stuff, even if indirectly through other members of his church. And again, I'm not saying all members of his church follow this stuff or agree with this stuff or even acknowledge this stuff, but some certainly do. There's literature about it, books written about it. There are podcasts. Interested listener can chase this type of stuff up if you're so interested. Well, it has been described as unhinged, evidence-free, deranged and insane. QAnon is a theory that believes in a secret plot against Donald Trump and the belief that there is an international network of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who control the world, including all the politicians and the media. And apparently Donald Trump is the one that's going to put an end to all of this control. It's a recent theory or it's a recent idea. It started off in the 4chan network in around 2016, just in time for the US presidential elections. And it spread a wide range of rumours about Hillary Clinton, including the allegation that she was part of a child sex ring at the Comet Ping Pong Pizza Restaurant. Now, just by being close to a prime minister or being a lifelong friend doesn't necessarily mean that you end up influencing policy outcomes or benefiting personally, even though that does seem to be the way that this government operates. Part of me feels that it's good for a prime minister to have some left field influences and be close to some zany people. Paul Keating had a few bohemian types within his close circle of friends and just because someone becomes a prime minister doesn't mean that they have to give up their friendship groups. But influences coming through something like QAnon, is this a serious issue about the judgment of the Prime Minister or just a case of bad appearances? It doesn't look good, does it? According to the Guardian Burns spy, who's been identified as Tim Stewart, he claims he hasn't spoken about any of this to the Prime Minister, that they get on, but he keeps his beliefs away from the Prime Minister. 
again, the Prime Minister would be aware of this stuff. I can't imagine previous Prime Ministers giving it any credence whatsoever. If anything, it would appear to set up a security issue for the government. The wife of Tim Stewart works full-time as a personal assistant at Kirribilli House, and Tim Stewart, whose Twitter handle is burnspy34, has been taking photographs from within Kirribilli House and publishing them through his Twitter account, interspersed with his messages about how he believes the Australian government is committing treason and the Christchurch massacre earlier Mm. this year didn't happen, which is part of a grand conspiracy to remove guns from people. This, to me, seems like a big news story, and for working journalists, you'd think this might be a story to follow, develop and keep publishing until you get to the heart of the matter. But the story just appeared in The Guardian just once. The Prime Minister requested privacy, and we don't know what else went on behind the scenes, and that seemed to be the end of it. No other mainstream media has published the story, and this seems to be the end of the matter. I know that if you're in the press gallery, access is important. But I also know that if you're a journalist, you have a role that is not just about giving good stories. Certainly, if the government does a good thing, and this is true of any government, you report that as a good thing, whatever that is. And of course, depending on your views, that can change. Cutting welfare might be seen as a good thing by some people. Adding to welfare might be seen as a good thing by others. But when the government does things that are sketchy, dodgy, corrupt, you should be able to jump on that as well. Now, since at least the Lions government of 1931 through 39, the press gallery has been treated very well. Drinks at the Prime Minister's office, social nights, the midwinter ball, all of that occasion has been a part of it. And again, let's be fair. It's not unreasonable to try and present yourself in the best possible light you can. And it's every single government that has done this type of thing, with the possible exception of the Keating government, where Paul Keating treated the press with absolute contempt mostly, and a lot of them loved him for it. Well, the position of Prime Minister is the most important position in the country, and when a Prime Minister asks for privacy... Journalists should respect that, depending on what the issue is. But privacy is always respected for Conservative Prime Ministers, rarely for Labor Prime Ministers. The media was always digging around for details of Paul Keating's personal life. The entrails of Julia Gillard's personal life were paraded for all to see. But whatever is the personal domain of John Howard, Tony Abbott and now Scott Morrison, it always seems to be off limits for the media. The QAnon relationship, that might be a side issue, but I guess the Prime Minister wants to get the focus back onto his government. Now, I don't think this government has got much of an agenda, and when a government is lacking in an agenda, that's when it goes off on ideological tangents and gets influenced by other fringe dwellers. The amount of sitting days in Parliament this year has been below average, but when they're actually there, there's not that much to talk about. Scott Morrison has cancelled the Council of Australian Governments meeting in December, claiming that there won't be enough of an agenda for the leaders to talk about. And the government has just embarked on an inquiry into interest rates, which essentially is another populist and futile bank bashing exercise. I've always assumed that the task of government is an all-consuming, difficult, intellectually challenging process, but it doesn't seem to be the case for this Morrison government. This government just isn't busy enough. One of the big criticisms of 
was it the Rudd government or the Gillard government? Was that it lacked a narrative? Now, no one ever said what a narrative was or what it should be, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, it was something that they could hammer that government on. I struggle to see what this government wants except to be in government. There's no debate. The 27 sitting days a year is disgraceful. It really is. Now, I know that local members have to spend time back in their local seats and and deal with the various things that um, local members have to deal with, which can be very time-consuming. It's as if they don't want to set an agenda, that the agenda is having the power and using it in ways that perhaps it's not being best used for. Robo-debt, immigration policy, refugee policy, these haven't gone down well. I think less sitting of parliament helps them get away with stuff. Mm. Well, it gets back to that factor of the agenda and the narrative. If you haven't got much of an agenda and not much of a narrative, well, that creates a vacuum. And and there's a whole range of groups and people out there wanting to fill in that vacuum. The Institute of Public Affairs, that's definitely one of the groups filling in the vacuum. There's a strong relationship between the IPA and the Liberal Party. They've already got a few members of the IPA sitting in this federal government. And whenever there's an opportunity, they'll push their right-wing brand of extreme libertarianism. And without too much of an agenda or the so-called narrative within this government, that's when you get the rent seekers associated with the Liberal Party, the spivs, the donors and all the other hangers-on trying to enforce their knowledge, philosophies and wisdom upon the government. Yeah, exactly. The IPA, it's a highly problematic organisation. It seems to be filled with either highly wealthy older people who are very happy with lower taxes and more money in their pocket or younger people who don't seem to be able to get meaningful work outside the IPA. It's all about lower taxes, less government, leave us alone, we know what we're doing, we want to be able to break the law and treat people badly without someone telling us we can't do that. The whole debate over the um, Racial Discrimination Act and, yes, Section 18C, they want it repealed, and only because Andrew Bolt was found to be racist under it. The fact that he was objectively being racist at the time doesn't seem to occur to them. And even if they repeal it, the courts will still find him a racist. He needs to go back to court and have that decision overturned, which I think he tried and it failed. But these tiny little things that, what is it they want to say that 18C doesn't allow them to say? No one's ever quite said that. So the answer is it must be something that they know to be pretty horrible. There are all these ongoing minor issues for the government and it's always the accumulation of these smaller issues that can create much larger problems. There's the China bashing, the Brian Houston issue at the US state dinner. There was also the fiasco with the rugby diplomacy in Fiji, where Scott Morrison was trying to be everyman by swilling tins of beer and running barefooted on the rugby field. Not much to report there in the mainstream media. And just as a comparison, when Julia Gillard lost her shoe in India in 2012, it was front page news at the time. It seems like this government can pretty much do as it pleases without much of a backlash in the media. And it's been like that ever since the election in May this year. But looking at the political and media landscape, what are the issues that will put a dent in this government? The Labor Party isn't providing much opposition at the moment. They're still waiting for their election review to arrive next month. 
So a weak opposition, compliant media, what will put a dent in the reputation of this government? Is it the economy? Is it cost of living? Or will it be something else? I think it will come in little bits. And I think it's already started. They only won by one seat. And it was only a matter of a few busloads in a couple of seats that got them over. And this isn't left-wing sour grapes talking here. This is an analysis of, of the numbers. The interesting thing was Anthony Green put up uh, a chart yesterday that showed most of the people who did the pre-poll voted for the coalition, but Labor won election day. Uh, it wasn't enough to push them over, interestingly enough. And it probably went down to seats like Chisholm where the booth that won it was a booth which had quite a lot of retirement villages and old people's homes. So that makes sense that they would pre-poll. From a political scientist point of view, usually the pre-polling would have suggested that people had changed their mind and wanted out and had made had made their mind up and wanted the government out. But in this case, it was really the other way around. And it was only people who'd waited to see the campaign play out who then went and voted Labour, which is very interesting. And I'm still working my way through that. And those statistics were quite fascinating. In the 2019 federal election, it was the highest level of pre-polling votes in history. 41% of all votes were lodged before election day. And of those votes, 54% voted for the coalition in two-party preferred voting. But on election day, the vote for Labor was 50.7% and 49.3% for the coalition. Unfortunately for the Labor Party, it's not just about the vote on election day. It's the total of all the votes, including the pre-polls. I'm sure the Labor Party will be looking at their pre-polling strategies at the next election and analysing the makeup of those electors that make their vote early in those three weeks before election day. It's a shame to see them throw out good policy because I don't think they lost it on policy. I think they lost it on other things. Suddenly Labor got distracted by franking credits. It's an issue which should have gone away very quickly, but they got caught up on it. Certainly there was a blind spot as to the popularity of Bill Shorten outside the party. This is where politics is unfair. Likeable people are hated. Hateful people are liked. To listen to people outside the seat of Dixon, Peter Dutton should not have been allowed anywhere near a seat. Yet he got back in, and I think, on an increased majority. Well, politics is never about being fair. It's never even really been about the best candidates winning. And it will continue to be unfair well into the future. That's unfortunately the way that politics is. But for some people, politics is more than fair. And it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. If you had to slow down and done it properly and improvise, it would have been sweet. I, like, if I had to check everything that every other tradesman did, we wouldn't be finishing. Like, it's oh, not... you got to be joking me, mate. It's not my These job, boys too. have built this structure and they had to knock down the old one. Are you kidding me? And we did an And you're, you're saying that, that because this is out of 100 mil, it, it, it's no good. I oh. mean, you've got to improvise around that situation from an 1850s building. That is the end of the story, as if I'm going to pay your bill. I'm not paying nothing, mate. You get the job done and get it done right. Australia has a new ambassador, but it's not the normal type of ambassador we'd expect to see. It's the television celebrity from the block, Scott Cam, and it's his job to promote national careers in the trades. Exactly what he'll be doing, we're unsure, and Scott Morrison has refused to reveal how much this position will cost, claiming that the deal is commercial in confidence. But we can reveal that it's in the order of $500,000 for two years of ambassadorial work, 
And that sounds like very good money if you can get it. Governments will, of course, bring in celebrities from time to time, and it rarely ends well. Karl Kruselnitsky took some easy cash, and I haven't seen Karl since. That's not to say he hasn't been around, but certainly it reduced his profile a great deal, and it damaged his credibility. Well, there's no issue in using celebrities to promote government programs. Parties of all persuasions have been doing this for some time, but the question here is, what is the government program that he's meant to be promoting? It's also in the context of the federal government removing $3 billion from vocational education and national apprenticeships over the past six years. State and territory TAFEs have been decimated and funding usually favours private providers. Obviously, Scott Cam will be promoting the value of students moving into trades if it's relevant for them, rather than making unrealistic attempts for university, and that's a good thing. But many schools are already doing this. It's hard to see which federal government program Scott Cam will be supported by, because this government has been doing its best to remove trades as an option for many students. It's a decision that it seems was made by a marketing person, and Scott Morrison describes himself as a marketing person, to make it seem that things are happening. Now, I hadn't seen the show, but apparently Utopia had already suggested Scott Cam as ambassador for trades or something, which suggests the government's propensity for taking TV shows and using policy, not realising that they're a parody. There was the one with Veep, the election slogan, constant change or whatever it was. Now we have Scott Cam. You hope that Yes Minister doesn't or the thick of it doesn't get a run because it might start to get embarrassing. The other thing too, just as an aside, if I was Scott Camp, I'd point to Barnaby Joyce's the level of production that I'd be providing for my two-year work as ambassador. Could have the three staff and I'll give you what Barnaby gave you at the end. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. You can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au and if you're listening on Apple or Google Podcasts, Don't forget to give the program a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find the program. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.